You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1340 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Tuesday evening to kick off November in style on this podcast and also look ahead later on in the show to a Wednesday game between the Hawks and the Knicks up at Madison Square Garden. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered the season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online is where the game starts. And I also want to tell you at the top of the podcast that you should be checking out the show and making us your first listen each and every day. Check us out at Locked On Hawks across podcast platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher, as, as well as video stuff over at YouTube. And uh, yeah, today's show is going to be sort of a grab bag of sorts. Most of the time in the last couple of weeks, it's been game-related content. We had Tower Jones on the show last week as sort of an exception to that. But with all the games happening, um, only occasionally will I be kind of either going solo or having a guest on the podcast in between game action. The Hawks are playing three or four times a week now. So that's most of the time that what we're, what we're going to be doing on the podcast. And I do plan to have at least one more show this week that's not game-related because of the two-day break in between Wednesday's game and Saturday's game. But some mailbag questions have piled up. In the, uh, in the mailbag locker of sorts. And you can, by the way, send more of those uh, to us at Locked on Hawks on Twitter, as well as LockedOnHawks at gmail.com on the email side. So that's most of the show today, but a little bit of news at the top of the podcast that sort of revolves around the NBA. It also includes the Hawks. There was a, a tampering resolve, uh, at least on some level, this week with the Sixers being hit with a penalty for operating before the start of free agency with P.J. Tucker and Daniel House. They got popped for two second round picks. Uh, not much to say there other than the way the league goes after tampering. It does not really make a lot of sense to really anybody. Basically, every team tampers, and if they don't, they get left behind. Um, Adrian Wojnarowski, though, this is part why I actually want to talk about for a second. Uh, Woj reported that the NBA and the Player Association are expected to revisit the rules that punish teams discovered to have had discussions with player agents on penny for agents ahead of free agency's official start. And he says the practice is rampant, but it's hard to police and largely impossible to eliminate. That's kind of what I think, too. Like, I think the tampering rules are just kind of for show. Uh, most teams kind of just do this anyway, and there isn't a whole lot you can do to overcome that. So, I don't really care about that one, but it was it was at least out there. I got a couple of questions about that, like tampering stuff, whether the Hawks do this, whatever. I'm not saying the Hawks do, but I think most teams do. It's just one of those things, and uh, I don't really have too much of a handle on that. But there was more national reporting. This actually got more more attention, and that was the uh, discussion about the hard salary cap. So the NBA and the Player Association are looking to hopefully reach a CBA agreement before December 15th. That's sort of the cutoff for the deadline to have each side give notice of plans to opt out of the current CBA, which expires in December 2023. So basically one year ahead of that. There was some reporting a few days ago from Woj at ESPN and others also that the league is basically pushing a hard cap. And they're referring to that as a, quote, upper spending limit. It's really a hard cap, though. And basically, that means that there's be a level that teams cannot go over for any reason. Um, there are triggers to the hard cap now, but only, only a couple of those every year. And uh, they're not really in practice. It's one of those CBA weird, you know, behind the scenes kind of things. But this would be a firm upper spending limit is what they were talking about that. But it's definitely a hard cap on spending. Multiple sources, though, have reported already that it's, it's a hard no for the players. And that's not a huge surprise. It's always been that way. The players do not want a hard cap for pretty obvious reasons. It sort of limits what you can spend as a team. And players don't like that. Mark Stein did report that he's actually heard more about this at this, this time around than any other time that he's been covering the league over the last two, three decades. But no one believes this is actually going to be in the CBA because the players just do not want it. It's a non-starter for the players. It's all in reaction to Golden State 
and the Clippers in particular spending a ton of money and doing it all legally, like just resigning their own players and making trades, taking advantage of their spending power and using their wallets to their advantage, which is something that any team can do if they want to. Like I've been critical of the Hawks at times for not spending money. We'll come back to actually later on the show with a mailbag question about Kevin Herter, but um, teams can do this. It, it just comes down to whether ownership is willing and able to spend the money required to make that a, a huge weapon in your arsenal. But also like, at the same time, not every team is going to do that. It's just you know, back in the real world, teams are not going to do that. So that's kind of what maybe the emphasis is, um, the impetus, I should say, for the owner side. The players are like this, though, which I definitely understand. Um, there's also some reporting from Woj that they're, that they're trying for cap smoothing for the inevitable jump in salary when the new TV deal kicks in. That's been a discussion point that I've talked about on the podcast a lot, dating back to the DeAndre Hunter extension and kind of the offseason maneuvering that's been happening. Everyone knows that in a couple of years, these the cap's going to jump a lot if they don't smooth out the cap. In 2016, if you are a longtime NBA fan, you'll remember this, but there was a giant one-year jump in the salary cap that led to a lot of weirdness. And it was because neither side, the players nor the league, came to an agreement on a way to smooth it out. So there was just this huge infusion of cash. It jumped the salary cap and messed a lot of things up. It was, uh, that's how KD got to the Warriors, etc. Um, that's gonna. I think that everyone agrees this time around. That's, not, that's probably not, not going to happen. I think both sides kind of understand the cap smoothing element now, but that's something that they're already working on at this point in time. And also, as someone who covers the draft extensively, this is one that's interesting to me. The league is reportedly already happening. This is these discussions are already sort of ongoing about getting rid of the one and done rule and letting high school players go into the draft out of high school. Now it's been a while since this actually happened. The league wants medical information mandated as part of that to kind of keep agents from withholding information from certain teams to direct their clients to certain fan bases or certain cities. Also, leagues have been pushing minimal requirements, the way that Woj put this, about going to the combine and actually doing some measurements, etc. I don't know what that line is in the sand, but uh, you know, agents don't usually like that stuff whatsoever. I think there's, uh, there's kind of been a culture of um, using that to their advantage, so no one loves that. But I think in the relatively near future, we'll probably see a one-and-done rule eliminated I'm not sure how quickly that's going to be, whether it'll be in the next CBA or not, but that's all happening at this stage as well. And overall, it's just time to kind of remember as a diehard NBA fan or even, even, even a casual one, honestly, that the CBA negotiation is on the horizon. There'll be more discussions about this in the near future. And because of that, there is uh, always that holding of breath to hopefully avoid a work stoppage of any kind or a, sl- a strike or a lockout, et cetera, and uh, have the basketball keep rolling. So that's all the new stuff at the top of the podcast. We'll have a preview of the Knicks game later on in the show. But in the meantime, some mailbag questions. And the first one comes from Jonathan, who I have met. Jonathan's a great guy. Shouts to Jonathan. He asks, do you think Nate McMillan should flip the stagger of Trey Young and DeJounte Murray and have Trey play the whole second quarter and the fourth quarter instead of playing the whole first and the third quarter? And, and he, he goes on to ask, isn't he the stronger offensive cog? And isn't the fourth quarter more important to everyone involved? First, it's not a bad idea from Jonathan. It's not a, a real possibility either. It's definitely a plausible thing. I have not heard the Hawks discussing this or that they might do it. Um, it might just be due to what it is, like, kind of just being comfortable for Trey Young. And it kind of does make some logical sense to flip it around if you think about it just kind of on the surface level. The one concern may be that you don't want to have Trey not be fresh for the actual crunch time portion. You know, usually when you see these guys play full quarters, it's going to be the first or the third because playing the whole fourth quarter is tough. It's high leverage and you're going all out. Not that guys aren't going all out all the time, but the fourth quarter is just a little bit different, obviously. 
So that's not an easy thing to do. Now, Trey has great has great stamina. He's definitely in fantastic shape. So that might be worth a, a shot because Trey's offense might be kind of better suited to lift that second unit. that doesn't have a lot of shooting on it. And that, that, was, that would obviously be sort of the impetus here is to have Trey play with those more offense-challenged units that feature your Aaron Holidays, or just, Justin Holidays, Jalen Johnsons, et cetera, and kind of have DeJounte benefit from playing with guys like Collins a little bit more. But the thing is, with the current setup without bogey, there isn't that much spacing on the starting unit either. That's one of those things that's kind of a little bit strange. Like, yeah, you still rather have be playing with Collins and and Hunter than you would be playing with Jalen and Justin. But it's not like that that big of a difference in terms of like the spacing elements and all of that stuff. So I would not personally change this at the moment. Again, it's not a bad idea. And the Hawks have already kind of staggered a little bit more than they usually would um, intentionally pairing. Trey Young with Clint Capella. And that's kind of a half measure to kind of do a little bit of this without having to change your whole rotation. Because I think, and the Hawks have said this as well, that Trey and Capella both benefit from each other. Um, Trey has great chemistry with Capella. Capella is a better screen setter than Akongwu is. Um, all that stuff on that end of the floor. And also Murray and Akongwu don't really have that, that same dynamism just yet. But Trey definitely has said on the record a couple times, like he loves Capella. That's been out there and repeated and, and sort of reported out there. Not, not, not against Akongwu, but those guys have a great chemistry and capella has been playing with high level guards for a long time and kind of just knows how to operate with those guys. But the Murray Collins lineups have been good this year, actually. And those two guys have actually played more minutes together than any two players on the team through seven games because of the way that they've kind of been approaching getting Collins back in there and kind of help Murray on the second unit. So they've already done a little bit of this. It's not been the full like stagnant rotations, like full bench units that Nate is kind of um, formally accustomed to. And actually I do like that. I think he's been a little bit more flexible this season with his rotations that I, that we've seen at times before we saw a little bit uh, even more of that on Monday against the Raptors where it did not go well, obviously, but they, they went ahead and kind of had a plan to not play Aaron holiday as much and not play Aaron holiday with Trey young in a regular season setting. Usually Nate's pretty rich on that stuff, but because of the size stuff, it's a pretty obvious adjustment, but still one that Nate was able to make. So, I think it's an option if they were to have some more problems with their lineups to kind of flip this rotation and flip the stagger a little bit. But I think for now, I expect Trey to do what he's been doing. I expect DeJounte to do what he's been doing. And by the way, DeJounte is actually playing more minutes than Trey is in the first seven games of the season. Not by a ton, but uh, it's kind of interesting to kind of see how that all aligns. And maybe change when Bogey comes back as well. You know, the Hawks famously kind of went to a full-on stagger with Trey and Bogey in previous years because they just kind of had to have somebody to engineer the offense with Trey off the floor. Now they have Murray to do that, but we'll see how they sort of ha handle that at this point in time. But for now, it's been a pretty, not rigid, but it's been a pretty firm nine to 10 man group. And uh, if, if nothing else, the Trey Murray minutes, they've had a plan for, uh, at least on the bright side of this. It's only been a couple weeks now, but I'm at least pleasant, maybe not a pleasant surprise, but certainly encouraged. There's been no debate about whether the Hawks will be staggering Trey and DeJounte. I was a little worried that, that Nate may not do that, but they obviously have done that. You know, every competitive minute of the season has had either Trey or just on the floor. That's at least an encouraging thing because you have to have that. It's very obvious they have to do that because those guys are the only ball handlers, really, at least the only major creators. But Nate's done that, and that's uh, sort of a low bar to clear, but he definitely has cleared it at that point in time. All right, we'll have more on some mailbag questions, including some shooting splits. That's a big one that we'll tackle later on in the podcast and uh, much more. And then, of course, a Knicks preview at the end of the podcast. But first, a word from our sponsors on the show today. Today's show is brought to you by Bet Online and the NBA season rolling along with action each and every night. Football is also in full swing at this point in November. 
It's a great time of year to be a sports fan, and BetOnline is the number one source for all the betting needs that you might have this season. Find all the latest to fo- football developments, game matchups, news, and podcasts. That's also true for basketball as well at BetOnline. And BetOnline is also the continuing source for wagering information that includes live betting and esports and live scores. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager anything that you like to at this point in the sports world. It's just a fantastic overall option across the board. On this show, we focus on the NBA, of course, most of the time. I would say the vast majority of the time. But there are plenty of NBA offerings still available at Bet Online, even with the season now underway. They have game lines and props every night. They have future bets still available on which teams go in the East and the West, the NBA title or the awards, all that stuff and more at Bet Online on the NBA side and elsewhere. Bet Online has odds and lines on college sports and football and baseball, MMA, boxing, golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, soccer entertainment bets, and much more. Head about online right now on your mobile device or your computer to learn more about all the trends and the action in the sports world. Bet online where the game starts. All right, and more questions to hit on here. And probably the biggest one that I've gotten in some form was about sort of the replies to what I was saying on Twitter in the last couple of days about the shooting splits for the Hawks and how their shot profile and all that. And actually, Mike wrote in to say, can you go, deep, can you go deeper into the shooting splits for the Hawks on the next episode? doesn't seem like the Hawks offense is the biggest problem. And I, don't, I don't always get all the numbers, but I want to at least ask is what kind of the way that Mike framed it. And basically what he's saying is um, Atlanta shot profile. And I put together a lot of tweets about this on Tuesday morning. I'll have more detail on it here. But first, I want to make this very clear at the top because Mike asked it and just to make it so nobody misunderstands me. I have not ever meant that the Hawks offense is the concern because the offense, as I've been saying really the entire time, I know not everybody listens to every podcast, the offense is still going to be a strength of this team. It's better than the defense. The personnel's better on offense. Trey's better on offense, obviously, than defense. I'm not saying otherwise. Um, but I do think that they have to they have some sort of low-hanging fruit to address the offense a little bit. And part of that is the shooting profile and kind of where they take shots from, how they approach offense. And this was also kind of the case last year. They had a similar start, not quite as bad as this, to be fair. But I and kind of got it corrected over the course of the season. But anyway, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is still a good offense, even if it could be better in my mind. But some numbers for you here at the end of October into November. So it's only seven games. That's also a small sample size theater of thing. I'm not saying to keep, take this as gospel. It's a very small sample size. But the Hawks are currently dead last in the NBA in three-point attempts per game at 28.6. That is a very low number. The Hawks are also taking the most two-point attempts in the league at about 63 per game. Um, and they're also the sneaky one for me anyway, is that the Hawks are taking the third fewest free throw attempts in the league at 21.6 per game. That's a very low number. Also, um, that combination makes for the worst location effective field goal percentage in the entire NBA, according to cleaning the glass. And that's what that stat basically tells you is that if you assume every team shoots a league average number from every shot, every shot location on the floor, that basically tells you how efficient the shot profile actually is. And the Hawks, again, are dead last in basically shot quality when it comes to where you take shots at on the floor for overall efficiency. A step deeper from there, and just basically just beyond the 2.3 point split, the Hawks are taking 30.9% of their shots at the rim. That's well below the league average of 34.5%. So they're not getting to the rim. They're not shooting shots at the rim. The Hawks are taking the highest percentage of the entire league of their shots in two point range outside of the rim area. So that four to, you know, four to 23 feet range, basically anything that's a two, that's not at the rim, 40.9% of their shot attempts. They're also taking the second highest percentage shots from, from floater range, which is that four to 13 feet range, AKA the Trey young range. And then they're, they're third highest in percentage of shots from the long mid range, which is 14 feet to the 23 feet or basically the three point line. Um, so 
One more thing here. The Hawks are taking 28.2% of their shots from three. That's, again, well below the league average and dead last in the NBA. And uh, the one small thing there is that they're, they're actually 20th instead of 30th in corner three-point percentage. They've taken more from the corners than above the break, at least in terms of percentages. But anyway, it's not a great profile. Like if, I know I'm, not everybody is really into the analytical stuff of this and kind of where you should shoot shots from. And every time I tweet that stuff, I always get thoughts get, get thoughts about like it's not always about this. And I'm not I'm not saying I am not the Daryl Morey old school like I guess new school style of like you have to only take shots at the rim and from three. I actually don't believe that. I do believe that there is a lot to be gained by taking the right shots. And that's kind of the the split that I'll kind of walk the line here on um, before I get the response again. And by the way, I never thought the Hawks were going to have a quote unquote great shot profile through these metrics this season because of who they have on the roster. And that's important to note, like the, the Suns are the example on the other end of the floor. So the Suns last year were the best team in the league in the regular season, like pretty obviously they had a pretty big flame out in the playoffs, but the Suns were a great example of a team who had an awesome offense despite taking a bunch of mid-range shots. And by the way, if you have Chris Paul and Devin Booker, it's okay to take a bunch of mid-range shots. So like no one's saying they shouldn't they shouldn't take mid-rangers. I'm at least I'm not saying that. Now, the Hawks are definitely set up from a roster standpoint to take more floaters and more mid-rangers than most teams actually would be taking because of Trey, because of DeJounte, who really excels in the mid-range. Guys like, you know, even John Collins is pretty good in that range. You have DeAndre Hunter who likes to take mid-range shots. Like, no one should be surprised that the Hawks are taking more mid-rangers than most teams do. Now, there is a step beyond that for me, and that's where they are right now, and that the Hawks are taking so many of their attempts from mid-range and so few attempts from three and also not getting to the rim and not getting free throws. It's like a perfect storm of bad shot profile stuff. Um, for example, last year when the Hawks were number two in the league in offensive rating for the season, they were still below average in the location effective field goal percentage metric. So like it's because they have personnel that is what it is, but they have, they have Trey, all that stuff, but they were not close to dead last. They were 17th in the league and three-point attempt rate. So below average, but not anywhere close to even bottom 10, much less last in the league. They were 20th in the league in rim attempts. That's not a great number, but it's not terrible either. They were 10th in the league in mid-range attempts in terms of like per possession. That's a fine number for this team. Is that like the Daryl Morey dream? No, it's not, but it's totally fine on a team that has Trey Young and a lot of guys that can shoot mid-range shots, especially DeJounte. And I have to remind myself again that this is a very small sample size, not a whole lot you know, should be going into this, and especially with Bogey out. Bogey is their best three-point shooter, with the exception of potentially Trey and I guess AJ Griffin if he's playing with big minutes, and that will help. Just having Bogey on the floor is going to help. He will bomb from three. That will definitely help them. But I do believe, even with the current roster the Hawks have, they should be shooting more threes and more attempts at the rim and more free throws and less of those Florida range shots and mid-range shots. Um, for example, the trio of DeJounte Murray, DeAndre Hunter, and John Collins. You're starting two through four. They're all taking five threes per 36 minutes or fewer. That's not comically low for any of them, but with a non-shooter at center as well in both Capella and Okongwu from three-point range anyway, those three guys have to shoot more threes. Trey's taking plenty of threes. It's those three guys in particular. And the bench, is the same could be said for Aaron Holiday and Jalen Johnson, both of whom are not high-leverage guys and high-volume guys from three. Really, the only guys in the rotation right now that are taking what I would describe as an above-average mark in terms of like attempts from three is Trey and Justin Holiday, and obviously you're throwing Griffin in there if he plays enough. But I'll stop for now on this. But like I go all day on this on this particular topic. But to bring it full circle, the Hawks are still scoring at a good rate. They're ninth in the league in offense right now as of today, 
Defense is the bigger concern for sure. They're obviously worse on, de- on defense and offense, but they have the personnel and the scheme and all that stuff to be a top five offense. They were number two in the league last year. I did predict that they were going to be a little bit worse this year and not because of anything that's like sinister. The combination of less shooting, having to work into Jante, and just also just some regression to the mean after being so good last year. But I do believe this could be a top five offense if they kind of put it all together. And I'm not saying that they should never take mid-range shots because DeJounte in particular, and I think Trey's obviously good from that range as well, those guys need to take mid-range shots. Those, those shots are difficult to, to sort of create and also make, but they are very good and they're good enough to take those shots. Um, but guys like, in particular, Hunter, and I think other guys, but I think he's probably the one that I would circle the most. More threes and less long twos from DeAndre Hunter is definitely important. And also as a team, this includes Trey, this includes DeJounte especially, getting to the rim, getting fouled, and getting rim attempts is all stuff that has to happen for this team to, to sort of improve its standing offensively. I don't want to go crazy. Uh, this is probably already too long on this topic for now, but I got a lot of questions about it. So I wanted to at least answer that one at the top and sort of uh, start off the mailbag segment in longer form with that one. One more here, at least to get to here, and it comes from Garrett, who says, should the Hawks fans actually be rooting for Kevin Herter to make the Kings good when it comes to the draft pick that Sacramento owes to Atlanta? So for one... I don't think the Hawks fan, Hawks fans should have any reason re, reason to root against Herter. Herter is not such a, like I know I know when team when guys leave their team um, in free agency they often get like booed like Al Horford got booed Joe Johnson got booed all that stuff. Herter got traded right after he signed an extension. It wasn't like he did anything wrong to get sent out of town. He's well liked in Atlanta. He's a likable guy in general and he's a good player. But as for the other part of the question, it's important to remember the Kings pick does not arrive until 2024 at the earliest. So this particular season, the Kings record has no impact on the Hawks. That's been, I guess, a common misconception that the, the Hawks are already looking for the Kings to be better to make the playoffs this year. It wouldn't help the Hawks if the Kings did anything this year. That, that pick is not until the following season. So keep that in mind. And really the only draft-related rooting interest for this year is actually the Pelicans. It's a very uh, sort of low-stakes rooting interest because the Hawks get the second-round pick from the Pelicans if they were to make the playoffs. That's not a huge hit because that would be a pick in like the low 40s or 50s, so who really cares? Um, I do, but not like on a huge level. I can promise you, though, that next year I'll be rooting and chronicling the Kings stuff all the way through the season about whether there's a first-round pick in play. Um, as a reminder that next year, the Kings have to make the playoffs for the Hawks to get that pick. Not likely, but at least plausible. And uh, I thought that it's a lot over the summer. I'm not going to do the whole thing again in full, but you know, it's one of those things. I, I will give my short view on the Herter trade. People kind of have been yelling about this like, once again. The Hawks could have kept Kevin Herter on the team. It is what it is. And trading him away made the team worse this year, pretty obviously. And that's not really up for debate in my mind. There's been a little bit of pushback on that. I think it's not debatable. And I said, as, as a big fan of Justin Holiday, I am maybe highest on Justin Holiday of most people. And uh, obviously Kevin Herter is better than Justin Holiday. So that was kind of a one-for-one swap. Now, a lot of the pushback to that reality seems to be like about Murray being on the team and the quote-unquote need to trade Kevin Herter. That's not really the reality. The Hawks did not have to trade Herter to get Murray, nor did they quote-unquote have to trade Herter to save money. That's on ownership. And by the way, not one, that's a decision that I don't think the Hawks fans should be like defending. It's just like ownership, obviously trying to save money. The best defense of the Herter trade, as I said, on the day it happened was that if the Hawks get the actual first round pick from the Kings, that makes the deal look better in a value sense for the future and for the overall standpoint. But that also does make you worse for this year. That's part of the calculus. And if that pick comes, the deal is going to look okay for the Hawks. Not great, but okay. Trading Herder for a mid a mid first round pick and holiday is like a pretty reasonable thing in an overall sense. If you don't care about this year, but the thing is, 
A, that pick might never come if the Kings don't ever get good enough to actually convey it. And B, that is not the reason the Hawks did the deal. Now, that's maybe a small part of the reason to get a pick back in the, in the trade. But the Hawks did the Herder trade and later did the Markless trade as well with the express purpose of getting under the luxury tax. That was what I said that night when it happened in July. It's what happened. They did it to save money. There's not really a debate on that in my mind. Now, there's always a segment of the fan base and really any sport. I've found, I cover the Braves as well. Same thing happens there. It defends the ownership for kind of ducking the tax or saving money or whatever. But the team is worse without Herder on it this year. That's kind of a simple thing. Somebody asked me in a mobile question, I can't remember who it was, so my apologies, if I thought that Herder would, quote, drastically change the team this year if he was around in place of Holiday. And I think that was it's sort of up for debate. I don't think it would be like a total team-changing entity to have Herder versus Holiday. But right now without Bogey, having Herder would be a huge, huge thing. He would help them a ton at the moment. If Bogey's on the team, does Herder's absence mean less? That's probably the case. Um, but at the same time, you could always have more depth. Bogey had injury issues. Herder's a pretty good ball handler. He's obviously a great shooter. He's shooting out of his mind this year with the Kings, which is even a small sample size, but he's always been a really good shooter regardless. And it definitely hurts more right now to have him out, to have him gone with Bogey out. That's also just true. But he's just better than Holiday. And again, I said as someone who's very high at Justin Holiday compared to the consensus. He wouldn't solve every issue. He's not a great defender, even though I think he is underrated on, on defense and is just kind of just fine. But the shooting, the playmaking, et cetera, he's young. It's a good contract, all that stuff. It's also fair to say, as people kind of push back that don't like her as much as I do, or like are just kind of, I guess, maybe tired of the, of the discussion, like one of the, the faults is like Herder would not be doing this with the Hawks. That is kind of true. Like he, he's playing more with the Kings than he would be playing here. No question about that. He's taking more shots probably with the Kings than he would be, he'd be taking here. Also true. But there would have been playing time for Kevin Herter. Like that's one of the misconceptions as well as like, even if they had Bogey, Herter would have played and he would have played a decent amount. Would he have played starter minutes? No, because DeJounte Murray's on the team, all that stuff. But like I've said it before, like Kevin Herter entering the season had been a better player in their in his career than DeAndre Hunter had been. And so far this year, he's been a better player than DeAndre Hunter had been. That's not, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that you want to pay Kevin Herter $95 million, but like he's on a good contract. It's like $15, $16 million a year. That's a pretty good value for what he actually is with a new TV deal, et cetera. Anyway, I'm not doing this whole thing again, but because I guess I have new listeners, people that did not hear the podcast over the summer when I talked about this a lot. So that's my abridged version. I did about a 30-minute podcast on this when it happened and then much more after that. But anyway, I made fun of the luxury tax avoidance and that kind of spurred this whole discussion. And I think, again, I don't understand defending ownership for that. I think it's very obviously what happened. They made the team worse to save money. And that's not really something that fans should be super excited about. But there you go. All right. Before we get to the last day on the podcast, which is a Knicks preview of the game on Wednesday, a word from our sponsors on the show today. All right. And one more quick mailbag-ish kind of thing before I get to the, to the Knicks preview. A few folks asked me if the first seven games of the season in various forms, they asked this question, if I like changed my mind on the team so far, basically. The short answer is no. I think it is, it's obviously early, but if you asked me what the team's most likely record was going to be through seven games, I would have either said four and three or five and two. The schedule was very soft in the first five games. I predicted four and one. They were four and one. They lost the last two games, but they were underdogs both times against the Bucks and the Raptors. And yeah, the Raptors loss was pretty bad. And it, by the way, I did a full breakdown of that. So if you missed it on Monday evening into Tuesday, I recommend listening to that show for my uh, my thoughts in the moment and also just a little bit more depth on this topic in general. But I think the Hawks being four and three through seven games is like a very normal outcome. I do think that if you maybe choose if I was more pessimistic or optimistic based on preseason expectations versus right now, I'd probably say slightly, 
I'd be a little bit lower on the team, just a little bit, just because of how like they weren't dominant in those first five games, the way they probably could have been at times. I think the spacing and the shooting concerns that I had are, have sort of borne out to this point. That's one thing. I think Hunter has not been like lighting the world on fire. I think the bench units have been struggling a little bit for the most part, but like I'm not worried about the team really at all. They do need Bogdanovich, that's for sure. But I think that uh, I think that's kind of, they're kind of like done what I think they were going to do. Not like every single thing. I think offensively, defensively, there's little things that I could sort of pick apart. But on the whole, through seven games, the Hawks being four and three is like a pretty much like in line outcome for what I thought. Now they're got to win some games in November, and we'll see how that all goes. But um, would it be better if they were five and two? Sure, it would be. But uh, they're four and three, and here we are. Defensively, they got they got to get better. And again, nothing about Monday's game created panic for me because that matchup is just brutal for the Hawks as it talks about a lot on that podcast Monday night. So no panic for me and uh, we'll see how they fare on Wednesday. Uh, speaking of Wednesday, the Hawks go to New York to play the Madison square garden led uh, New York Knicks. I'm not sure what to make of the Knicks just yet from a team standpoint, because it's kind of hilarious how even their results are for the year. They've played six games so far. They're three and zero at home and zero and three on the road. They have beaten three bad teams. They have lost to three good teams. They are 13th in offense and 15th in defense. So they're basically right dead center in the middle in every category. Uh, it's kind of strange. They obviously have some strength and weaknesses that are like beyond that. Like they're pretty deep as a team and the Hawks don't have a ton of depth, but they don't have that high end talent that the Hawks do. Obviously, I think, you know, Trey and Jonathan are both better than anybody on the Knicks roster. For example, uh, Jalen Bronson does help them quite a bit on offense. And the Knicks are, by the way, in the top five in the league in turnover rate right now and getting also getting in the glass. That's a, maybe a potential area of worry for the Hawks in that game on Wednesday, but not a lot of shooting necessarily for the Knicks in certain lineups. Defensively, they always contest shots at a high level with Tibbs, and they're getting smoked, though, on the glass, and they don't really create turnovers, so there's some there's some weaknesses there. Uh, Trey always enjoys Madison Square Garden. He has the third highest scoring average of any team against the Knicks. He's averaging about 29 points per game in the regular season in his career, and that does not include the 29-plus per game in the playoff series two years ago where he was waving, the, waving to the crowd etc. Uh, Trey has always been up to play at MSG. I think he'll be that way again, especially after he played very poorly by his standards on Monday in Toronto. So he'll be jacked up, I'm sure. Um, as for the injury situation, Bogey's still out for the Hawks. And uh, they do have an injury, though, for the first time all year that is not Bogey, to keep in mind. Now, there was a brief illness listing for Justin Holiday last week, but he ended up playing in that game. But Akongwu is listed as questionable with left shoulder soreness. If you watch the game on Monday, I talked about it a little bit on the show as well. He got injured in the fourth quarter, and his shoulder was obviously in some pain. He left the game right away, never came back in. Now, we didn't know at the time because the Hawks were getting blown out, and he had no reason to come back in. But uh, it's kind of hard to tell how that, all, how that all was. There was no like official update beyond the injury report. So he's listed as questionable. That's better than it could have been. He's not been ruled out, so it's probably not going to be a serious injury because otherwise he'd be ruled out already for the game on Wednesday. But... Uh, notable that this is the first time the Hawks actually, actually have to, have to sort of navigate a different situation with regard to the injury report. And other than Bogey, everyone's been available so far through seven games. So we haven't had to go through too many lineup hypotheticals. But I'll say this, if the Kongwu is out, I would expect the Hawks to at least try Frank Kaminsky in his place. Now, Kaminsky looked quite bad in the preseason. It's still preseason. He's a veteran, but it's been a few weeks. I think my expectation would be pretty low for Kaminsky but he, after the way he looked last time I saw him. But uh, I'm sure that Nate would probably try him uh, on some level. I do not think, though, Kaminsky would play all the minutes that Conway usually gets. It'd be more Capella, probably, and maybe a little bit of John Collins at center in the way that they have used him at that spot in the past, particularly if you were to play John and Jalen Johnson together. would be a good idea. If you were to play Collins at the five, having Jalen out there as well for some more size makes some sense. 
We'll see. They might go small some with Collins and Hunter at the four and the five. That's been a unit they've used in the past. But um, it's all hypothetical until Kongwu is in or out on Wednesday. But if he's out, that'll be interesting to sort of see how Nate McMillan handles all that with regard to you know Collins or Jalen or more Capella and uh, Kaminsky as an option. On the Knicks side, old friend Cam Reddish is listed as questionable for New York with a non-COVID illness. And Quentin Grimes is questionable as well. Grimes is a guy that a lot of people like, including me. Um, but he's not playing – actually, he's not playing all, at all this year. He's been injured the entire time. So he might, he might, might be making his debut on Wednesday against the Hawks. And um, Reddish has actually been flashing pretty decently this year. Obviously, some highs and some lows for him, as often if you watched him in his career. But he's been playing a lot more with Grimes being out for the Knicks, so we'll see if either one of those guys can play. If they're both out, the Knicks will have some pretty weak, uh, weak setups on the wing. But anyway, at last check, before this podcast was recorded on Tuesday evening, the Hawks were two-point underdogs at Online. So close to a coin flip, but the Hawks are slight underdogs on the road. Anytime you have the last game of a five-game road trip, it's a tough spot. The Hawks were um, obviously not good on Monday. They're probably embarrassed by that result. Maybe be a little bit uh, more juice for the game on Wednesday, but a rest advantage for the Knicks. They were on, they were at home for an extra day, etc. So we'll see. Five thirty-eight and sports line both project the Knicks as a small favorite as well. So kind of an agreement there. Um, a narrow edge to the Knicks. Honestly, I think the Hawks are the better team, but it's a road game. And if Kongu's out, that, that presents a challenge as well. If Kongu plays, I'd have more confidence in the Hawks just because of the drop-off from those like 18 to 24 minutes that he plays per night. Having to get those to somebody else, whether it be Kaminsky or more small ball or whatever, is not great. But we'll see. The Knicks do have good size uh, for the most part, so that's an area to certainly be concerned about. But the Hawks have Trey Young and Ajante Murray, and the Knicks do not. So I'd probably lean, the Knicks, uh, sorry, lean to the Hawks if I had to choose, but it's definitely a close-fought game, and there's nothing wrong with the Hawks being underdogs. It's just one of those narrow things, and we'll see how that all fares. So I'll have a podcast about it after the game, as well as we always do. If you made it to the end of the podcast, I do appreciate you listening to the show. But please subscribe to the podcast across podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, also YouTube on the video side. Please follow us on Twitter at Hawks. Follow me if you like to on Twitter at BT Roland. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening, everybody, as always. And we'll see you after the game on Wednesday.